Take your Bibles. Let's return to 2 Samuel. This morning we're in chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I would encourage, admonish you to consider the value of thinking about death as we are considering together, as we're praying for brothers and sisters in Christ that are facing this. The Bible teaches us there's a unique benefit to looking at death. It helps us to live well. It helps us to consider what is valuable and important in this life. And it would be unwise to waste such an opportunity. But the Bible also tells us that precious in the sight of God is the death of his loved ones. So we grieve with those in our body who grieve and we want to be an encouragement to them. We want to show them our care and our love. So if there's ways that you can do that through text or an email or send a card, uh, I think that'd be very much appreciated and welcomed. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll look at this text, the first four verses in just a few moments. What will make you a more gracious person? What can transform a human being into somebody that's more kind, more loving, more thoughtful of others? That kind of change is hard, isn't it? What's going to make you a more gracious person? A more gracious parent to children who seem to struggle over and over again and again with the same kinds of things. What will make you a more gracious spouse to a husband or a wife who doesn't always understand you, respect you, or appreciate you? A more gracious son or daughter to parents who you feel are always on your case, who misunderstand you? What will make you a more gracious friend to those who do not consistently affirm or encourage you? What will make you a kinder, more gracious church member to those who are prickly, whose comments and personality irritates you? You know, today a typical response to those who are hard for you to deal with is to simply remove them from your life. Cut them off. If someone is toxic, then separate yourself from them. We tend to treat others in the same manner we would handle a retail interaction. If this relationship is not meeting my needs or is not what I want, then I'll just move on to the next store, to the next relationship. Now, this is completely fine in a commercial exchange, but it's nothing like how God intends for us to interact with others, is it? God says we must love one another. We must love our neighbor, and we must even love our enemies. If we're honest, we're not truly very good at any of these three. What this means is that we need to grow in our love for those within our own homes, those within our community, those within our church family. So the question remains, what will make you a more gracious, Christ-like person? Now again, I want to think about this for a minute. By nature, we are pretty hard on other people, aren't we? We deal with them in a way that demands almost near perfection. We're easily offended often. 
And yet we expect and want to receive a lot of grace for our own behavior. But let's hear again what God expects. Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And here's what he means in that. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, those who do not know God, do the same. You must therefore be perfect. Perfect in your love as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's the question. How can God command something like this? Certainly this doesn't mean that you lay down and intentionally let someone sin against you. True biblical love would confront the person sinning. Not just to protect self, but also for their own good. That's what true love is biblically. The question this verse poses is how can we love our families and our neighbors and even our enemies like God loves? Isn't this a ridiculously high command? Well, we won't be able to achieve this kind of love perfectly or completely until we see our God face to face. But he very much does intend for us to work at this and make progress. And by giving us this command and his spirit, it is possible for us to make progress. So the question remains, how? How? How can I be more gracious, more loving to those within my sphere of influence, to those God has put into my life? How does God transform my relationships? Well, here's the key point our text this morning is illustrating for us. Only, only, as you understand God's covenant faithfulness to you, his love toward an undeserving enemy, will you begin to change how you view and treat others in your life? Think of that very carefully. Only as you see him and how he treats you, in spite of what you deserve, will that change how you treat others. If you're treating those around you with constant impatience, harsh words, and disregard, then you must conclude you don't understand God's love for you very well at all. In our text this morning, through this account of David's kindness, his loyal love to Jonathan's son, we see God's surprising love for us. Our text will teach us that God's king demonstrates the steadfast love of God to a surprising, undeserving recipient. Let's look at the first four verses of chapter 9 and then ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Verse 1. This is God's word to us, his people. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. 
he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Let's ask for God's help together as we look at this text. Father, we come before you confessing our need. We need to be changed more and more into your likeness. We want to love as you have loved us, and we know that we can only do that by your grace. So work in our hearts this morning. May your spirit convict us, challenge us, comfort and encourage us to walk more and more like our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, our three points in the sermon are going to center around that word, kindness, that we see repeated three times in our text. We first see the kind inquiry of a faithful friend, second, the kind reception of a surprised descendant, and finally, the kind provision of of God's gracious king. Now, the text indicates some passage of time. We're told at the end of the chapter that Mephibosheth, who we'll see identified again in a moment, has a son of his own. But when we last saw him in 2 Samuel 4, he was a small boy himself of five years old. So 15, 20, 30 years have passed since those events have transpired. David's enemies have been defeated, his throne secured, and his empire established. Now having learned the story of David from a young age, most of us are not surprised at all to see him now seeking to find someone to exercise kindness toward. But for the first audience, remember these books are an extended sermon. This extended sermon, in this sermon, they would recognize that this is not the normal behavior of a human king. It's surprising. It's strange even. It grabs our attention. Why would David seek out someone to whom he will show kindness? What's motivating him? We're not told a lot of context. It's just David has this question. What is motivating David to seek out someone to show kindness toward? Now, can you think of anything in the previous chapters that would be motivating him? Of what grace, of what undeserved steadfast love had David himself been a recipient? Remember his response of praise in chapter 7. Because of your promise, David says, and according to your own heart, Or your own desire, God, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, David concludes, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. One of the main lessons this text teaches us is that those who best understand that they are the undeserving recipients of God's grace, are the most eager to show it to someone else. David is a man who has meditated long and often on God's grace to him. We know this is true because of all the Psalms that David writes with this theme that's filled with this truth. God is gracious to me. This text is perhaps in a way unique. In that it invites us, it urges us to consider how this pictures for us the gospel, God's relationship towards sinners who are weak and needy and undeserving. 
And I would encourage you, even as we work through this sermon, before I begin to make those points of application, how does this point us to Jesus? You be thinking of this. David is representing what our Christ, God's King, is like toward us. Consider how it's true that those who best understand their undeserving recipients of God's grace are eager to show it. Consider the amazing transformation in the New Testament of the Pharisee Saul to the Apostle Paul. What fuels his passion for the spread of the gospel within this man's heart? What's so amazing, looking at Paul's writing and his life, is this is like an unquenchable flame to him. He goes from one situation to the next, facing trouble after trouble for speaking the name of Jesus. Even in prison, he's saying, I rejoice that I can be imprisoned for the sake of Christ. What would fuel this man this way? He's consumed with God's grace to him. He's amazed that God would rescue him from his self-righteous zeal and blindness. And his grasp of this truth that God loves him, an unworthy, undeserving sinner, that God rescued him, this truth fuels him continually. Are you a recipient of God's steadfast love in your unworthiness? Is that changing you? Is God's grace to you in Jesus Christ changing you? Is it shaping the way that you show God's kindness to others? Is it motivating you to open your mouth to those who need to know him and hear of him? Is it changing the way you treat others within your home, within your spheres of influence? First, we see in verses 1 through 4, the kind inquiry of a faithful friend. Again, the passage begins with little comment as to the setting. David asked the question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David's intending to fulfill the promise he'd made to Jonathan long before he sat on the throne. Just think about how surprising this question is from David. This is a king who's now at peace. And it's almost like within his own spirit, he's not at peace in his motivation to do good to others. Perhaps we think little of this because we've heard this story before. But look very carefully at who David wants to show kindness to. The narrator is doing something on purpose. He says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? David puts his enemy's name in his mouth. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now, the text is going to tell us that David is eager to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. But I want you to keep an eye out for how often Saul is actually referenced in the text. It's actually showing us that David is pursuing kindness to his enemy. You see, Jonathan is mentioned four times in the passage, but Saul's referred to 11 times, rather. The narrator is making the point that David is doing good to his enemy. 
And we're told at the end of verse 1 that David has made a covenant promise to Jonathan decades to go. It's important for us perhaps to understand those promises, to think of them again. We heard them read, but I want you to hear them one more time. Just three of the verses. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. So notice, that steadfast love, that's what the word kindness is in our passage. First is from the Lord. That's the context. That's the frame of reference for David's love. He says that I may not die and do not cut off now your steadfast love, David, from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Do you see what Jonathan is doing? He's saying your steadfast love should be the result of God's covenant love to you. Now, the covenant promises that David makes to Jonathan really are mainly focused on David sparing his house. We'll talk about why in a few moments. But what's incredible is that David makes a similar further promise to Saul after he'd spared his life in the cave. Saul said to David, swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So the essential point of David's promises to both Jonathan and Saul was that he would not kill their descendants when he rose to power. David's request, though, seems to indicate he wants to do more than simply assuring their survival. Instead, David tells Ziba that he intends to show Saul's descendants the kindness of God. Well, what does that mean? It's important to understand what this word kindness in the passage means. We've seen it twice so far. It will appear one more time in the text. It's appeared in the covenant made between David and Jonathan. And it's the Hebrew word hesed. Kindness is a fine translation here. But that in no way captures the depth and range of this word. Of what the word means. This Hebrew concept forms the backbone of God's relationship with mankind in the Old Testament. It appears 246 times. And it's translated throughout the Old Testament as steadfast love, mercy, kindness, unfailing love, loving devotion, and grace. In Exodus 34, 6, this word is essential to how God speaks about himself. When he speaks to Moses, listen to what God says of himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. A hesed kind of love is based on a covenant made between two unequal parties. Now think of the contrast. A customer or retail relationship says, if you give me something of value, I will give you something of value. But covenant love or kindness in our text says, you have nothing of value to offer me. And yet, I will show favor, kindness, and love to you anyway. Can you see why this is a character trait of God? 
He shows undeserving, needy sinners. He showers them with grace and love continually. He abounds in steadfast love. In spite of the fact that all they bring to the relationship is need and brokenness and sin. This, this is what David is eager to show as he says in verse 3. Why? Because David is responding to what God has shown to him. You know, we're to make relational commitments like this. Our relationships are not meant to be retail consumer relationships. We make commitments like this in our marriages. We make commitments like this to our church family. We recite a church covenant repeating promises we're to make to one another before God as a body in Christ. We should seek to be committed to our children in this way. We love this way because we've been loved this way. And we're to be seeking to show this God-like, Christ-like kind of love to those who need Christ. Is this how you view your commitments? Is this love of God shaping the way you treat others? In verse 2, we're introduced to a well-to-do servant of the house of Saul. He appears before King David to answer this initial question. Somehow they know he has knowledge of Saul's house. He's a servant in the house of of Saul. He does know of a son of Jonathan. And the only thing he tells David at this point is that he's a man crippled in his feet, living in a place of near exile. Jonathan's son seems to be depending entirely on the goodness of his host. Now, the area he mentions is an area east of the Jordan. It was last known as the stronghold of Ishbosheth. So, again, the text is highlighting this man should be viewed as an enemy. How did conquering kings treat the families of vanquished enemies and predecessors? Remember, it was not too long ago that the last remaining son of Saul, Ishbosheth, had plunged the nation into civil war in spite of what he knew God had said of David. So any relative of Saul's could potentially become a rallying point for those who are dissatisfied with David. In a sense, he's risking civil war again, according to human logic. That's why most kings remove by execution every descendant of the former ruler. And yet here's David seeking out another relative of Saul. This isn't how kings normally seek to secure their kingdoms. One author states, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history and watch the kings of Israel, watch Baasha or Zimri or Jehu to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was convenient, conventional political policy. Solidification by elimination. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. But instead, rather than waiting for an opportunity to show kindness, we see David here initiating, pushing forward, seeking 
taking all the action in the text. He proactively seeks out someone to whom he can fulfill his promises to Jonathan. So David has moved. He's no longer just a recipient of God's covenant love. He's now a mediator of God's love to others. Notice carefully how much David drives the action of this passage. He takes the initiative over and over again. He chooses to show God's kindness to Mephibosheth apart from anything that Mephibosheth has done or will do. Isn't this a fitting picture portraying Christ's pursuit of you and me? An old hymn text written in 1836 rightly states, Lord, tis not that I did choose you. That I know could never be For this heart would still refuse had your grace, your steadfast love, not chosen me. David is seeking for a member of the house of Saul. How will he treat him once he finds him? Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then King David sought or sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David And fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Secondly, we see the kind reception of a surprised descendant. Now, Mephibosheth's condition highlights his helplessness and his need. Remember, in Old Testament narrative, when a character's physical features are pointed out, are highlighted, it tells us something about him as a person. It's important to the plot, to the story. Here, the fact that he is lame in his feet is a significant detail in this account. Consider just how much Mephibosheth lost on that faithful, fateful day described in 2 Samuel 4.4. When somehow he's dropped by his nurse. Count up in your mind all that he's lost. He's lost his father. He's lost his status, his position. He's lost his family's property and home. He has to flee. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. He's essentially lost his future. His lame feet would have reminded him over and over of the loss of his family, of that day when that horrible news entered into his little ears. And even the name of the city in which he lives highlights the surprise of David's kindness to this man. Lodabar means no word or no thing. So before us, we have the grandson of Saul, the enemy of David, who is a lame man, a lame nobody from nowhere. He deserves nothing. Now, it also seems significant to notice something. Notice the way, the change in the way that David is addressed by the narrator. 
In his recorded conversation with Ziba, he's referred to repeatedly as the king. But now in verses 6 and 7, the narrator changes how he refers to him. He calls him David. And when David is talking to Mephibosheth, the first thing he says to him is he calls him by his name. This is the first time they've ever met. And David greets him by his name. God's king is initiating a personal relationship with the grandson of David's greatest enemy. One who could be considered a rallying point of opposition. And David offers him words of grace. Do not fear. Mephibosheth, humanly speaking, has every reason to be afraid. Think of every step of that journey that he made to Jerusalem. Fearing what's about to happen. Is David going to do what every other human king that I know of does? Is my life about to end? Instead, God's king offers him words of assurance and comfort. In verse 7, David makes him again a wealthy man in a moment. He restores him to his princely position in his kingdom. He gives him the personal lands of his grandfather Saul. Again, property is a sign of wealth. And Saul would have had a significant amount of land personally. But David goes farther. This is the grace of God's king. He secondly tells him that he will have a seat at his own personal family table always. David's not giving him only possessions, but a position of honor as well. This reference to being seated at the king's table is mentioned four times. It signifies he's in essence adopted into the king's family and treated as a son, as a prince, as a child of the king. How do you handle your positions of influence? Are you showing grace like this? Like God's king? Or do you demand everyone to live according to your laws? Your rules. Where have you been harder, more harsh, more unkind, more demanding than God has been to you? You'll never lead. You'll never care for those under you if you do not understand the undeserved grace that God has poured out on you. Those who best understand that they are the undeserving recipients of God's grace are the most eager to show it to others. Do you see how God pursues sinners? He's the God who saves. He's the God who pours out covenant love, love that can't be earned. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. If you're hearing these words If you're recognizing your condition before God, he is pursuing you. If you don't know him, this passage tells us he's eager to show you even greater greater grace than even the most generous human king could ever display. Think of it. David's kindness is as nothing compared to the mercy sinners receive in Christ. The possessions, the position, the honor the family name, a new home. Think of all of these benefits. 
If we turn to him in repentance, if anyone turns to him in repentance from sin, he makes you his own. He brings you into his own family as a son or daughter of the king. Let's look at the remaining verses in our text. Look down again at verse number 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We finally see the kind provision of God's gracious king. Verses 9 through 11, David demonstrates further kindness to Mephibosheth by securing his provision through Saul's servant. Just think of it. David is saying, okay, you have all this land, but you're a lame man. How, How would he work the land? David is caring for him very thoroughly, isn't he? He provides workers for the land. Ziba is a man of some means himself, having many sons and servants. Now the comment in verse 12, speaking of Mephibosheth's son, demonstrates, it's included there to demonstrate that David has made sure that Saul's family line has not been cut off. God's king has honored his promises even to his enemy, even to one who could offer David nothing in return. David's faithful love towards Saul's house ensured the survival of that line just as David had promised. Here is God's faithful king. We also see again in verse 12 that David restored Mephibosheth's position. All who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Ziba would now continue to serve in Saul's house, but he would serve Saul's grandson. And in verse 13, Mephibosheth is now living in the city of a king, of Israel's king. He has a new home. He's no longer in exile. He's welcomed, received, made at home by the king of Israel. He eats at his table as one of his son. And finally, Mephibosheth's condition is referred to again in verse 13. Why is this the last word? His physical condition is the last word, demonstrating again that he has nothing to offer David. And yet God's king shows him undeserved and surprising kindness. God's grace is shining. It's shining forth through the king of God's own choice. This, this is actually what it means that David was a man after God's own heart. He's exercising the same kind of surprising, undeserving kindness to those who cannot earn it or never deserves it. Listen, this passage doesn't glorify David. It's not saying be like David. It's saying look at how David is overflowing with the love and kindness of God. 
Look at how wise God is to raise up this kind of a leader who will respond to God's promises this way. Now, I believe this passage invites us to identify with the characters in the story. But we should do this again in specific order so as we're not highlighting David more than the text is encouraging us to do. We're first called to see ourselves as Mephibosheth in this passage before God and Christ, his king. We are broken. We are in exile, helpless, outside of the family of God. We are his enemies. But God's king, in his great mercy, because of a covenant he made apart from us, he pursues us. He initiates the relationship with those who have no business entering into his presence, entering into his courts, entering into his home. And when we arrive, he calls us by name, establishing a personal relationship with us. Listen to how Paul describes us before Christ in Romans 5. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He gave up his kingdom so that we could be included in it for all eternity. Author Walter Chantry elaborates, we are broken and maimed by the fall. Yet we live in the kingdom of Adam's successor, Jesus Christ. Though we are his servants, we are not too eager to come before him. Then one day a messenger arrives. The master calls you, we're told. He sought us out and sent for us. We did not take the first steps to meet him. Before we even imagined speaking to Christ, he thought about us. But how can we speak to him? What can we say? We deserve to die. We deserve nothing. We have nothing to offer to him. God in his great mercy has set his love upon us. So our first response should be the same as Mephibosheth's. What is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. I have nothing. A dead dog is worthless. There's no good in me. Who am I that you should love me? The hymn text asks, how can it be? How can it be that God should love a soul like me? Oh, how can it be? This is the why of grace. This is the only proper response to God's grace. Every time we see it anew, it humbles us into the dust. Why would you, God, pursue me? There's no answer. There's no answer other than the character of God. This, this is the real surprise of the Bible. The surprising, overwhelming, steadfast love of God toward undeserving sinners. So our first response should be stunned gratitude and willing service. Notice what he says. What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. 
But I also believe we're not just to see ourselves as the recipients of God's grace, as Mephibosheth in the story. We're secondly to become conduits of God's grace to those in our lives. Those who best understand that they are the undeserving recipients of God's grace are the most eager to show it to another. So because God's king has poured out steadfast love to undeserving sinners, we should demonstrate the same kindness to others. Scottish pastor of the 1800s, Alexander McLaren, writes of this passage, we must receive mercy from God before our hearts are softened, so then as to give it to others. Just as the wire must be charged from the electrical source before it can communicate and light. We must receive mercy from God before our hearts are softened to show it to others. Remember what Paul tells us in Titus 2. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, a name, a home, adoption, who are zealous for good works. What will make you a more gracious person? What will change how you treat your spouse and your parents and your siblings and your unbelieving friends and your church family? The text answers a deeper understanding of God's grace that is then in response demonstrated in attitude and actions to God's kindness to you. Once you've considered just how undeserving you are of God's grace and just how much he's showered upon you, then you must pour it back out on others. You must ask yourself like David, to whom would God have me show the steadfast love of the Lord? God wants to change you by showing you what he's like and giving you the grace to treat others the way that he treats you. It starts by looking over and over and over again at his steadfast love to you through his King. Those who best understand that they are the undeserving recipients of God's grace are the most eager to show it to others. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we marvel at this picture you've painted for us. This living lesson of what our king is like. And yet we know that it is just a glimpse of the riches that Christ gives for us. He has pursued us. He's loved us even to the point of death. Who are we that we should be recipients of a love like this? What can we say to grace this great. Lord, we are humbled by your love. And yet we are encouraged and affirmed and strengthened in it. That we might live for you. That we might be passionate to tell others of this grace, of this love. You are a marvelous God. There is none like you. May we run to Christ 
to see ourselves in our need and to find his grace and mercy that will meet every one of our needs and gives us a status and honor and position and a home with you as your children forever. We will eat at your table always into eternity. We don't deserve this gift, but we worship you for it. We pray that we would get in our place as your servants and serve with gratitude and joy. In Jesus' name. I'm going to encourage you to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. Again, we don't do this every service, every sermon. But I do think a text like this challenges us to respond. We respond every time God's word is opened because we never can meet up to this perfect standard. Would you take the next few moments of silence asking God to do in you what you cannot do in yourself? Look at the gospel again. It truly is changing everything.